Don't placate the difficulty of life away in comfort, but look at you and say, you are enough for me and you are my provision. This morning, God, I just ask that you'll help our hearts to look up to you off of the world, off of our weeks, off of potentially difficult family situations that have happened this Thanksgiving, off of whatever it is that might distract us from you and especially those things that will paint you as a different person than you actually are. I pray that as we listen to the word this morning that we'll see you for who you are, see you as the God who is just and gives grace and kindness and has compassion and love and power to change. Let me pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Go ahead and make yourself comfortable. I wanted to introduce you to Janet, and she's going to talk to you a little bit about what she's into and her hope for Knoxville. So this is Janet Hamilton. Good morning. Like Luke said, my name is Janet, and I'm going to be sharing with you guys about CARM this morning. Um, it seems like CARM is a, it's pretty much a household name in the Knoxville area. A lot of you probably have heard of it by the thrift stores. Some of you might be familiar with the actual mission, and so hopefully what I have to share to you today gives you some new information and insight on what CARM is and what CARM does. So um, first off, CARM stands for Knoxville Area Rescue Mission. It's actually located at 418 North Broadway. If you've ever taken Broadway towards downtown, you can't miss the group of homeless people that are underneath the underpass on the way there, and CARM is right in the heart of that. Um, it was actually started by a group of businessmen and ministers in the downtown community of Knoxville. They saw a need to feed hungry men coming into the city by train, and they purchased the synagogue on Fifth Avenue and opened a shelter for men in 1960. CARM's mission is to seek to rescue the poor and needy of the Knox area by providing rescue services in Jesus' name. I wanted to read a couple of facts and figures. I know you guys really like facts and figures. So, the no so what are the homeless, or who are the homeless? The Knox County homeless population includes families and individuals representing every race, age, group, and community in Knox County. Often persons that experience homelessness are negatively portrayed as panhandlers asking for money. On the contrary, Knox County's homeless population consists of working families and individuals. Many live in cars, parks, motels, homeless shelters, and under bridges, trying to maintain their dignity while they struggle to survive. As a result, most homeless remain hidden. There are approximately 1,700 homeless persons in our area in any given month. The percentage of the homeless population suffering from some form of mental illness or emotional problem is estimated to be 50%. The drug use among homeless women has increased 35% over this last year. Currently, about 75% of the homeless are male and about 25% are women. 40% of the homeless in Knox County are part of a family unit and approximately 15% of the homeless are under the age of 18. This is the fastest growing segment of the homeless population in our community. Of the children aging out of foster care, one-fourth will be homeless within one year. Let that sink in. So, CARM provides meals, overnight emergency and long-term shelter, and residential recovery services to the poor and homeless victims of domestic violence, displaced families, and disenfranchised men, women, and children throughout the Knox area. Services also include community meals three times a day, seven days a week, including holidays, job training, employment, and educational assistance, counseling services, and rehabilitation programs. CARM serves nearly 1,000 meals daily and is the only provider in Knoxville that provides free breakfast, lunch, and dinner. An email was sent earlier this month that stated, by the time Thanksgiving comes around, Carmel have served more than 31,000 meals by the end of the month, which is a lot. Um, nearly 400 people per night stay at Carm in various housing options for single men, single women, and families. There's a few different shelters that they offer. Um, Carm is funded um, from individual donations 
CARM is not a United Way agency, nor does it receive any direct federal or state funding. Most of you are probably familiar with the stores. Um, CARM stores serve the community by offering affordable merchandise as a Christian ministry to the general public. The revenue generated through the sale of donated items is used to support the ongoing work of Knox Area Rescue Ministries. There are 18 CARM stores between Farragut and Morristown. Man. And every $2 the stores make provides a meal for somebody at the mission. Um, so it's pretty cool. I work at CARM in Sevierville, and I am a donation processor. I've worked there for two years now, and what I do is when you come to CARM and make a donation, I work with a team of people that receives your donation, goes through the donations, cleans them up, and decides a price, and then sends it upstairs or onto the sales floor um, to then be purchased by somebody walking through. Um, we see lots of interesting donations all the time. And so um, there are a few people in this room. If you don't mind raising your hands, I'm not the only one that works at CARM, if you don't mind raising your hand. If you look around, there's two on this side. There's a few missing today, but um, I'm sure if you had any questions beyond this morning for me or them, they'd be happy to answer your questions. And they all work at CARM in different capacities as well. Um, and so how can we be praying for CARM and the ministry that happens down there? Um, one thing we can be praying for is that the ministry as a whole would be the true hands and feet of Jesus at every level, from the CEO down to um, the people that are working on the front lines with the homeless people, um, to the people in the stores dealing with customers and donations. Um, there are some really cool ways that you guys can be involved. Um, pray, pray for the Lord to just give you sight and vision on how you can be involved. But CARM is always looking for volunteers. You can volunteer at the mission. You can volunteer at any of the stores. We're also always um, hiring at all different levels. So if anyone needs a job, we're always hiring. Um, one of the coolest things you can do now at the mission that I think is cool anyways, it's called the Every Bed, Every Day Project. And what happens is... Prayer for every bed occurs on site in the sheltered dorms between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. when the dorms are unoccupied. That way, every person is covered in prayer. As the Holy Spirit leaves, you can also write scripture and notes of encouragement and leave them on the beds. That's such a cool experience. If you have time to do that, I highly encourage you bring your kids. It's so neat to go around walking around and praying over beds that you have no idea who's going to be there that night, but the Lord does. And there are so many stories that come from people who are just down and out reading these notes and the Lord just meets them right where they're at through your words even though you have no idea who's going to read those words. It's so powerful. Um, you can go to karm.org for any further information um, to sign up for volunteering or um, just to learn more facts. Everything that I've shared with you today can be found on that website um, and more. I barely scratched the surface. So with that, I'm going to end in prayer. I'm going to read a scripture, and then I'm going to pray. Um, Matthew 25, 35 says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the ministries in this town um, of all different capacity, serving all different kinds of people. And we thank you for ministries like CARM that, that reach homeless people, um, people that we don't always understand, but are, we're, we're just, we're, they're people too, we're people, we're all the same, Lord God, and it seems like we're just a few decisions away from being in somebody else's shoes, and Lord God, as believers, I pray that we would take your word seriously, knowing that it is the living word, and that we have a duty to be the hands and feet of Jesus to every single person we come in contact with. God, we are your attitude, we are your mood, we are your facial expressions, we are your touch to every single person in our lives. And I pray that you would search our hearts and show us the people right in front of us that, um, that we walk by, um, that our desire for comfort and convenience would not blind us from who you want us to serve, Lord God. Every time you sat at a table with sinners, you were not nervous, you were not anxious, you were at rest in the Father and you, you know the depths of our hearts. And so, Lord God, as we seek to serve this city in all the ways that you have gifted us to do so, I pray that we would be like Jesus. Give us your strength. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Janet, you did great. You can give it to me. That's fine. 
Thank you so much. Yeah. And listen, if you have questions or, like she said, want to get involved, you can always pull a Connect card that should be in a chair right around you and write your name down and that you'd like to know more. You hand it to Caroline at the guest table on the way out, and we'll make sure that somebody gets in touch with you on that. But it's good to have you here. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Um, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. That's going to be the passage that's going to lead us. Last week, we took some time to kind of look at what anxiety looks like during the holidays. I'd like to take a look at what Thanksgiving looks like during the holidays. Not necessarily the, the holiday Thanksgiving, but what it means to give thanks. Now, I'm going to flip the script a little bit on being thankful at the end of a year, which is going to be kind of tough for me because this has been a booger of a year for me, capital B booger. It's been a hard year. Um, some of you that I know closely, you've heard me say that over the last 20 years and five months of being a vocational minister, 2018 has been the hardest year I've ever had. Um, I'm sure I'm going to have tougher years in front of me, a lot tougher seasons before me, but in all honesty, I'm ready for this year to just end <laughs> and for 2019 to come. And I know how dumb that sounds. My wife is always making fun of me. She says, listen, January 1 does not care that it's a new year. Your same problems from December 31st carry over, but I can't hear any of that, right? Just the, the promise of something brand new is just intoxicating to me. So I'm a real big nerd when it comes to Jan 1. But trouble does leak from one year to the next. I hear Eliphaz in the, in the back of my mind when I was preparing for this quick little sermon today. He was one of Job's not-so-awesome friends, not-so-helpful counselors. And he says, man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. That's a true statement. Man is born into trouble just as sure as sparks fly up from a campfire. And Jesus actually kind of confirms it later on when he says, in this world you will have trouble. It's true. I know this to be true. If you're born into this world, you're born into trouble. That's the way it goes. It doesn't matter if it's December 30th or 31st or Jan 1 or April 1st. It doesn't matter. We have trouble all around us. Now, handling trouble is one thing, right? That's where we fix what's broken around us. It's where we endure the pain that's going on. But what about being thankful for that trouble? What about being thankful for those circumstances? So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5. This is what it says. This is Paul, and he is speaking to a young church, and he says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's going to be our chief passage today, right? Being thankful in all circumstances, that just feels like next-level Christianity to me. It just seems a little bit out of reach. I learned this year in 2018, I've got a long way to go here. And I'm, I'm chancing that you do too. Because I think when trouble comes, we focus on how we behave, right? How am I behaving in this pain? How am I behaving as I'm being attacked? Or how am I behaving in this affliction? But rarely do we think about how we feel. How we feel is significant. But for us to feel a certain way, we feel like that should be up to us. Like, it should be up to me how I feel about this, this junk going on around me. It should be up to me. For God to expect for us to feel a certain way, it feels like he's overreaching a little bit. It just feels like that. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5 again. Give thanks in all circumstances, all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. All things, though? I mean, what about miscarriages? Or job loss? Or your marriage falling apart? Or your body falling apart? Or your mind falling apart? What about depression or anxiety or migraines? I mean, you name it. God's will, as we see it defined in a passage like that, is for us to be a gracious people. A gracious people. Not just where we sequester our thanksgiving onto a day, where we circle up, we hold hands, and we, we thank God for the, for the big ones, right? For friends, for family, for health, for food. Those are the big four that I'm sure most of you thank God for just this last week. God's will is for us to be gracious in those moments, but also for our everyday, every moment as we journey 
on this planet in every circumstance. Now, whether we're gracious or not, it's kind of an elusive target. It's hard to see. It's, it's, it's hard to see when you're not being gracious. So that's why I said earlier we're going to flip the script on it a little bit because if we look at the opposite, which is grumbling, then it becomes alive for us. Grumbling is the opposite of being thankful, and it is much easier to see. I'm a grumbler. I'm a grade-A grumbler. And when I grumble, it reveals that I'm complaining and I'm discontent, but it also shows that I'm not thankful. I don't have any gratitude because you can't be thankful and grumble about the same thing. It's impossible. If you're grumbling, you're not thankful. If you're thankful, you're not grumbling. Let's look at Philippians 2. Philippians 2, turn to the 13th verse if you're there. If not, then we'll put it up on the screen for you. It's a familiar passage. This is the same Paul talking to a different church. And he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Man, I'm telling you, maybe it's just me. Passages like that, they feel so otherworldly. To not grumble. To be thankful for all things. I would prefer, if it was up to me, to be able to get a pass and grumble about certain things, right? Just certain things. And I would even, I mean, if you gave me, Luke, we'll give you a list of things you can grumble, but it could only be three things. I'll find three things. I mean, I just want a few things that I don't have to be thankful for. I want God to maneuver creation in the cosmos to suit my preferences. I want what I want, when I want, I want it, how I want it. Is that so much to ask? That's what I want. Grumbling is faithless complaining. Faithless complaining. It declares that God is not sufficient. He's not sufficiently good, wise, loving, strong, competent. He's just not enough. Grumbling is saying that God is not able to run a universe. It's accusing him. It's pointing at him and saying that he is wrong. Grumbling, if anything, in all reality, if anything, it's just rebellion. It's rebellion. It's standing against God in a rebellious fashion, and God sees this as wicked. We see this connected, being wicked and grumbling at the same time in Numbers. You don't need to turn there. We'll put it up on the screen. But God is seeing this young nation of Israel complaining about just about everything. And he says this in the 26th verse of the 14th chapter. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel which they grumble against me. Now here's a quick question. Is there ever a good time to complain? There really is. Interestingly enough, there's a great time to complain. In fact, there is a holy and sanctified way to complain that we should not just indulge in, we should practice. We should be good at it. Complaining to God as someone who ultimately trusts in God is what we call a lament. Now, we've kind of had some drive-by moments in the previous few months where we've mentioned and kind of maybe given you an idea of what a lament is, and we're not going to do anything in depth on it now. Now, next week when we start our class on spiritual disciplines, we will talk about the lament a little bit, right? But the lament is not the same thing as faithless grumbling about how God is ripping us off. Lamenting is very integrated. It's a holistic disciple practicing something that is a very deep spiritual discipline. It's coming to the place where we are able to honestly process all the junk that's going around us and call it what it is. It hurts. It stinks. I don't like it. I don't like the way it makes me feel. It injures me. I want it gone. It's the ability to do that and then still land in a place of trust. But I trust you, Lord. Where we land in worship. I mean, we what? We covered 12 Psalms when we went through the Psalms. Half of them were laments. And we see David doing similar things even through those laments. Listen, if you learn how to lament properly, it will be one of the most powerful spiritual disciplines you can ever exercise. 
I'm telling you, it's not a sign of immaturity. It's a sign of deep maturity. David does it all through the Psalms, and that's why some of us struggle reading David in the Psalms, because we see him lamenting, and we see him as a guy who can't keep a lid on his words. He doesn't know when to stop complaining. He's always moping, always whining, that David. No. He is emotionally integrated. He's exercising a spiritual discipline where he's honest with what's going on around him. He's honest and intimate with the Lord and a father that he can speak to with that depth and then still land in a place of trust. It's not saying that everything's okay. It's admitting it hurts. But that God is good and he means good for us. In fact, if we were to just compare grumbling and lamenting in an easy way to see it, grumbling is complaining that lands us in rebellion. Lamenting is a way that complains that lands us in trust. Now, we get these confused a lot. And when we see people grumble and when we see people lament out loud, we see it as the same thing and we see it as immature, right? So we we abuse it a little bit there. Another problem that we have whenever we see grumbling or lamenting, we demote both. We say lamenting is not very helpful and grumbling's not that big of a deal. It's a tiny problem, like a little small bad habit, but it's not that big of a deal. But friends, listen, it's not a minor key issue. It's a major key issue. I mean, if you're grumbling or you catch yourself grumbling out loud or inside, it doesn't matter. These are the things that it's revealing about you. Grumbling means that you're being self-centered. That you're saying, God, you are not valuing me or my experiences. Me and mine. You're not. See, it's impossible. When we're grumbling, it's impossible to even conceive that God is doing something bigger than you, around you, possibly through you. All we could see is what he's doing for us, what he's doing to us, what others are doing to us that he's not fixing. But we have this inability to see beyond ourselves. Grumbling builds a myopic soul. Grumbling also shows that we are losing our slip and our grip on what the gospel is. Our heart and our soul just says, God, you don't mean the best for me. You don't mean the best for me. But we're talking about a gospel that shows us the picture of a kind God doing kind things for an unkind people. And he does it at his cost, and he does it for our benefit. He only does what's best for us. Grumbling forgets that. Grumbling forgets that. Grumbling also shows and reveals that we have unbelief very rampant in ourselves and others can see it. It's good to process things honestly, outwardly, where others can see it. It's good to do that. Lamenting out loud is totally fine. Hear me when I say this, too. You should do it when you get the opportunity in front of those who don't even love Jesus, those who are far from Jesus. They need to see that because this is what they think. They think that bad stuff happens to you and you just distract yourself from it or you pretend that it's not happening, but you've got your head in a hole. It is good for somebody who is far from Jesus but wants to know more to see you process what's obviously very difficult in your life and then still saying, but God. Otherwise, they're just watching you come unglued, right? That's not helpful for anyone. Grumbling also means that our intimacy with the Father is under attack, where we want an answer more than we want God, right? Even our very proximity with our Father is up for grabs. Grumbling also means that we are likely to disciple and build other grumblers around us, because what we're saying to disciples that are around us is, trust God at your own peril, man. I mean, your risk if that's how you want to do it. But I'm telling you as a disciple myself who's still being discipled, I look back on my younger years of Christianity, you know what formed me with the heaviest hand? Watching seasoned Christians go through trials. Watching them, their heart, their face, their marriage. Watching how they handled themselves, their emotions. Watching how honest they were, yet how much they were finding Christ through the whole thing. That formed me more than a book could. Or a bunch of sermons can. It's important. You see, grumbling is more than just a small, tiny, bad habit. It's an indicator light and a thermostat on how you see the gospel. On how you see the gospel. God's good story of favor towards you through Jesus, who lived, died, and lived again, 
at your benefit, at his cost, who is now at the right hand of the Father after beating sin and death, who has given you the Holy Spirit as he prepares a better place for you, and one day he will collect the whole family back together. Grumbling says, I don't believe any of that. I don't believe it. That's what grumbling says. That's why it's important for us. And listen, this isn't just true for an individual. This is also true for a local church. Not just our church, any church, right? Grumbling is the, I think of it as kind of the canary in the coal mine for the life of a local church. If you're not familiar with what a a canary in a coal mine is, just a saying where back in the olden days, I suppose, miners would go into the belly of the earth to mine whatever they felt like mining, but they would always bring a small animal in a cage. I don't think it was always a canary. I mean, it could have been any small animal because carbon monoxide would snuff them out faster than it would a miner. So the miners would always keep an eye on the canary or squirrel or whatever they could find, I don't know. But whenever the animal died, then they knew what? It's time to get out of the mine. (laughs) It's time to leave. I feel like grumbling is a little bit of this canary in the coal mine. When grumbling replaces thanksgiving, in the life of a people, it's time to leave the coal mine. It's time to leave the coal mine. You see, when churches begin to die, you don't always see this, but you will often see a tremendous amount of grumbling. That family did this to us. That pastor did this to us. Those people did this to us. The landlord did this to us. The economy did this to us. The government did this to us. That tragedy did this to us. You're not going to hear a whole lot of thanksgiving or gratitude on what God is doing in our midst. I believe this is why Paul was so emphatic and insistent when dealing with the young church on grumbling, right? Because I've seen churches die, and not a few. And oftentimes, the death rattle, it sounds a lot like grumbling. People who are just, they're not able to be thankful anymore. To really celebrate and be thankful for even the difficult things that God is bringing them through. So what about you individually? Are you a grumbler? I know I can be. Or maybe you have been a Christian long enough that you know not to grumble outwardly, But inwardly, you're stewing on how God and man has ripped you off, right? Because isn't it easy to thank God for the obvious blessings, food, friends, family, opportunities, health? It's easy to circle up and be thankful for those things. A little bit harder to be thankful for the pain, the struggle, the sickness, the anxiety. Now, if we're well-behaved, we might not grumble. We're just going to be silent when those things happen, right? Just silent. We can't give thanks in all things, just some things. And when it gets too difficult, we're just quiet. But let me tell you, silence in those moments, that is passive grumbling. It's quiet rebellion. It's just quiet rebellion. Listen, grumbling is a a big problem for me. I'm addicted to it. (laughs) I feel so much injustice in the world, and when I say that, what I really mean is I feel injustice towards me. That's where I could really see it. And sometimes I just want to blow off steam and let the four walls around me know how ripped off I am or the inside of my truck cab. When I'm all alone, that's my favorite grumbling spot. I mean, if you ever see me driving around Knoxville and you see me talking and there's no one in the vehicle, I'm not using Bluetooth. I'm probably not singing either. I'm likely grumbling. Just honk your horn at me and say, hey, cut that out. Okay? I'll thank you for it later. But I just feel like I want to blow off steam. How I'm right. How I'm being victimized and how I'm not being resourced to get what I need done. How others are hurting me. How even God might be hurting me. You see, being thankful in all things, man, it seems like it's so far away, doesn't it? Like it's for elite Christians that just kind of float along the ground. They don't even walk like us mortals do. I mean, have you ever seen someone just thank God for being handicapped? Have you ever seen anyone thank God for being paralyzed? Have you ever seen anyone thank God for cancer in their life? I have. I've seen it. Where if they were given the choice of their affliction vanishing or more God, they choose more God. How crazy is that? How crazy is that? I know they didn't get there overnight. Man, it's just astounding that they're even there. 
You know, last year was the 50th anniversary for Johnny Tata's paralyzation, the moment where she was paralyzed, right? So it's happened when she was 17, so I guess she's 68 now. She was 17, her whole life in front of her, she was in a diving accident, was paralyzed, and her whole life since the age of 17 totally changed from what she thought it would be. She has people have to roll her over when she takes naps. Her husband has to roll her over in the middle of the night because it's too painful to sleep on one side. She has people have to dress her. She can't do anything for herself anymore. This is what she said on the day of her 50th anniversary. She says, I don't think you could find a happier follower of Jesus than me. The more my paralysis helps me get disentangled from sin, the more joy bubbles up from within. I can't tell you how many nights I have lain in bed, unable to move, stiff with pain, and have whispered near tears, oh Jesus, I'm so happy, so very happy in you. God shares his joy on his terms only, and those terms call for us to suffer, in some measure, like his son, and I'll gladly take it. Man, I want to be like that, and I know what I'm saying when I say that. I want to be like that like a lot of you. I can thank God for family and friends and health and opportunities and a house and a roof over my head and fill, I can do that. But can I dare to name the thorns in my flesh? And thank God for those as well. For what it's forming in me. For what it's doing around me. That looks different. Now is this attainable for the mere mortal? The answer is yes it is. We could learn a lot on how to do this by watching one key moment in Jesus' life. Listen, you'll miss this moment if you're not looking for it. He's brilliant in how he does this. Look in Luke 22. It's one of my favorite moments in Jesus' life. And this shows a lot of high Christology too, which is just a study of Jesus, but you'll catch it as we read through it. We're only going to read two verses in Luke 22. And we're going to jump in verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. All right, we're going to pause right there. This is Jesus giving thanks, he's being thankful. There's gratitude embedded deep into this part of the passage. By the way, this is not the same thing as us praying for our food before we eat. <laughs> Don't get the two confused. That's not what's happening here. This is actually a prophetic moment for Jesus. Oftentimes, a few times, you will see Jesus enact a prophecy rather than just speak it, right? So, for instance, whenever you see Jesus go into the room, the locked room, and the Bible says, and he breathed the Holy Spirit. He says, receive ye the Holy Spirit, and he breathed upon them. That was an enacted prophecy pointing to the day of Pentecost, which will come a little bit later on, where the Holy Spirit blows in like a wind and starts and inaugurates the new church. Like that, this is a moment where he breaks the bread. And what is he doing? He's prophetically pointing to a time where his body will be broken. That's what's going on here. He's imaging what's going to happen to him. It's what we celebrate with the tables that we'll have set up behind you when we have worship a little bit later. We're tempted to overlook Jesus being thankful here because he's Jesus, right? As if knowing it was going to be all right in the end made this moment any easier on him. And it doesn't. It's like whenever you see a movie that you've seen six or seven times, I mean, the intrigue doesn't grab you like it did the first time, does it? because you know how it's going to end. There's, the drama doesn't have the teeth that it originally did. What we do is we take that experience and we project it on Jesus as if that was what was going on with him, knowing, being prepared for what was coming his way. But friend, his agony was real, and we can't take that from him. The nightmarish moment of the atonement on the cross was the most excruciating moment ever experienced by man in the history of history. It was I mean, the crucifixion is where we get the word excruciating. Prepared or not, it was a nightmare. And in the face of this nightmare, the worst trouble that has ever tortured a human soul, Jesus trusted that the Father's promise, 
that his work on the cross would overcome the worst hellish evil in all of the world. He saw that dark moment coming his way, and he thanked God. Even in that circumstance, he thanked God. I mean, I would just be presuming to know what his heart was saying in a prayer like that. But I think it might have sounded something like, thank you, Father, that my body, symbolized by this bread, is just pointing to how my body will be brutalized and broken. And I'm about to feel the weight of the full wrath you have against all sin, and mankind's about to throw its worst at me, and my closest will run. Thank you. Thank you, Father, that you will ultimately receive glory in this and forgive sinners and we'll dine together and we will be reunited as a family. Hundreds of millions of brothers and sisters, we will be together. Thank you for this coming my way. See, remember from, if you were here last week, we spoke a little bit on how Jesus has been called the, the high priest, the last high priest, Right? in that he is a sympathetic high priest. And if you have time on your own, go to Hebrews 4. That's where the author of Hebrews really kind of dissects that a little bit. It's a great study if you have the time for it. But he's a sympathetic high priest. He's just different from you in the fact that he doesn't fail in the same place as you do. Now, he's sympathetic and he understands the temptation you go through, but he doesn't break down. Now, that's not a small thing. If he's the last high priest, this is what it means. It means he is a spotless priest going to give a sacrifice. You see, back in ancient Israel, for a priest to give a sacrifice, they themselves would have to have their sins covered. There would have to be a sacrifice for the priest before he could administrate the sacrifices for the rest of the nation. Jesus didn't need that. He didn't need that. He was spotless. And because he was spotless and did not need any kind of blood to cover his sin, he was able to be a sacrifice. A spotless lamb and a spotless priest. Without the need for someone to cover him, he covered you. And yet, and yet he sympathizes with your grumbling. When you're grumbling in your car or when you're alone or in front of people or just in front of God, when you're grumbling, he gets it. He's sympathetic. He was tempted to do the same thing. He was tempted. Jesus was tempted to say, not fair. Not fair, this whole gospel thing. And was it fair? I mean, it's really not that fair. What's fair about the gospel anyway? A lot of things are happening on the cross. Fairness is not one of them that I see, right? Grumblers like me are getting something that we don't deserve, and I'm not getting what I do deserve, yet Jesus is not getting what he deserves. He's getting what I deserve. Fairness? I don't see it. I don't see it. I would have blown it. I would have said, listen, listen, fellas, this is bull. Like, I had a flawless performance. I did what I said I was going to do. I was perfect. No sin. Everyone saw it. I did a great job. In the cross? Uh-uh. God, listen, we need to talk about this, this thing going on. Obviously, you can't run the cosmos that well. This is the best thing you could cough up. In all seriousness, this is just dumb. I would have grumbled. I would have grumbled. I would have been a grumbler. But this is the gospel that saves you. And this is the gospel that sustains you as well. It doesn't just save you from death and from the power of sin. It sustains you from being bound to sin. It sustains you of being free. It sustains you. You know, part of your gospel story, as we've just seen in Luke, is Jesus thanking God in all circumstances. It's part of the gospel story. He was able to thank God by breaking bread over what he knew was coming his way for your benefit at his cost. So we're free. You're free to not like your circumstances and still be thankful in them. You're free to hate what Tuesday feels like and still trust God in the midst of it all. You're free to suffer and still believe that God has not robbed you or that he's not able to run his universe or that he's not oppressive. You are free from your circumstances telling you how to feel because how the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit has allowed you to walk and see and live. I'm free to show gratitude even in the harshest elements that time and space can throw right now. I'm free to lament 
even when it doesn't make any sense to the people around me. I'm free to land in a place of trust, and you are too. But just as some quick diagnostic, I mean, I want you to consider where do you catch yourself grumbling the most? Where does that happen for you, right? What is it that others are not doing for you right now? How are other people screwing up your operation? That's where we're pointing our finger this way. Then ask yourself, what is it that God's not doing for me? How is he screwing up everything? That's where our fingers are pointed this way. How is that happening for you? I mean, because you just can't get a fair shake, can you? Can't get a fair shake. Someone's doing it to you. They're being thoughtless. They're not giving you what you need. You're getting stuff that you don't deserve. Others are getting what you do deserve. It's just not fair, is it? It's not fair. But the will of God is for you to come face to face with the not fair in your life, the grumbling, and ask, what is it that I need so bad? What is it that I feel I need so bad right now that is being withheld from me? And why do I require this so much right now? Recognition, peace, justification, vengeance, apologies, appreciation, reward. And what does it say about how you see God? What does it say about how you see yourself? Because listen, sure, you have trouble. That's okay, Jesus said you would. You have trouble. But God allows all sorts of things he does not approve of. Let me say this again so you don't miss it. God allows all sorts of things that he does not approve of because he hated the torture, the injustice, and the treason that led to the crucifixion. Yet he permitted it so that the world's worst murder could become the world's only salvation. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Ask Johnny Tata, she'll tell you. She'll tell you. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4 is also a helpful passage. We're going to be in 17th verse. I'm just going to run right through a couple verses. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, your thanksgiving puts the gospel of God on full display for mankind. So how do you give thanks in all circumstances? How do you do that? We just do it the same way Jesus did. We pull from his playbook. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. There was a joy that was set before him. He trusted the Lord. And we are able to do the exact same thing with the exact same Holy Spirit, with the exact same promise given to us, with the exact same God. And yeah, it's a hard fight. This is a hard fight. God told us that it would be that way. But we grow in the practice of cultivating gratitude. And how do we do? Through rigorous exercise and discipline of doing it. Where we practice seeing grace around us instead of seeing self. Where we practice being thankful for things that it doesn't seem right to even be thankful for. It takes practice. In fact, if I was to just drive a little bit of harder application to it, you know, there is something that, I mean, we'll learn about it when we do our spiritual disciplines class. In fact, we're going to learn how to write one. It's called a rule of life. It's a real old practice of developing what your spiritual disciplines look like, hourly, daily, weekly, monthly, annually. It's just a, it's a master plan of how you sit at the feet of Jesus and behold him, okay? Whether you do it every hour all the way up to every year. It's just, it's a rule of life. And what some people will do within their rule of life is they will carve their day into segments. This is just a freebie. Carve your day into segments. Zach Eswine calls it the four portions. That's how he divides it up. I do mine. Um, I'll do it somewhere right before lunch, somewhere right before dinner, and then early in the morning. So I only carve mine into three days, but I'll have an alarm that goes off on my watch, and then it just reminds me, and this is what I do. I think back to how I've been feeling the last five or six hours. What's been the most predominant feeling? And it's taken some practice to do this. It's an exercise. It's a, it's a discipline, right? And I, have I been feeling ripped off? 
have I grumbled? In our case, we'll use it for grumbling. What have I grumbled about? What is it that I'm feeling I'm being robbed of? Who's taking it from me? Why do I need that so bad? What does it mean about how I see God? How I see myself? And it allows us to process that quickly. Because you know how it is. You get to the end of the day, you forget how you felt at 9 a.m. that morning. But if you cut that day up into portions, a good spiritual discipline is just to reflect back and say, how have I felt the last five hours? Was I angry? Why was I angry? What was being stolen from me that made me so angry? Was I thankful? Why was I so thankful? Was I thankful because God gave me something? Or was I thankful because he is good to me? Right? And you're able to give yourself a hard assessment often. And it only takes a moment to do this. Just to step off the track. Just for one second. And ask a couple really well-placed questions. And then when you're done, step right back on the track and finish your day. It's a great spiritual discipline. Another rendition of this is I know some guys, other pastor friends of mine, I don't do this journaling, something that's a little bit of a struggle for me, but they'll keep a journal by their bed. And before they go to bed, every day they write down one sentence, a date and a sentence. This is an area I saw God's good grace to me today. That's it. They're not allowed to write two, just one. And all I have to do is locate a place where they can be what? Thankful but they're having to practice to look through the lens of thanksgiving. To be thankful in all things. And this is what they'll tell you. Luke, we would start off just thanking God for good things that happened to us. Right? A great phone call, check in the mail, you name it. But then it started to turn into, God, I thank you that I, I slipped into depression for a few hours on Saturday because it just reminded me how far I was swerving away from you and how you will come one day and upend even depression and there will never be another tear except what is caught in your bottle in your hand. You will wipe tears from all eyes. And that's where they land. That's a, that's a discipline. It has to be practiced, though. It has to be practiced. All right, go ahead and stand with me. We'll go ahead and jump out of this. I just, listen, we're, we're about to have our moment of communion, and this is where you get to respond as a church. There will be song, there will be music, and you'll get to sing along. That's a great way to interact with God as your response. Um, we'll have communion in the back, and that's where we really celebrate what God has done for us on the cross with the body broken and blood spilt out. So we take that in remembrance of him. So listen, if you're a Christian here, whether or not you are part of Legacy Church, we invite you to take communion. If you are if you are not a Christian, but you're a searcher, or you're a skeptic, or you're somewhere in between, or you're not quite sure, we just ask that you give your life to Jesus, that you would pray, and you would give your life to his kingship and his lordship in your life. But listen, if you are saved, if you call yourself a son or a daughter of the king, you have room to repent as we take communion and as we sing and as we pray. Room to repent for rebellion and unbelief that is underneath all of our grumbling. That thing in us that says, you are insufficient, you don't know what you're doing, and you're just horrible. That's an area of repentance. Now listen, you could ignore everything I've said today, everything, and get in your car and you could grumble for the rest of your life. And if you're a Christian, hear me now, God doesn't love you any less. The gospel says you are free to grumble. You're free to be a grumbler. But you're also free to give thanks in every single circumstance. And it doesn't mean that God loves you anymore if you do that. But you can enjoy Jesus. You can grow in an intimacy with him as you're thanking him in all circumstances. And listen, if you're in here and you are far from Christ, like I said, a searcher or a skeptic, just know what you already know. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Grumbling is in your DNA. Adam was a grumbler. Eve was a grumbler. Their first kid, Cain, big grumbler. And on the dominoes go, all the way to you, you're a grumbler. I know you're thankful for things, but it's impossible for you to be thankful in all things because that takes the power of the Holy Spirit. Without God being your prize above all prized, grumbling and thankless complaining is always going to be your permanent accent. So you have an opportunity as well to be in repentance, 
to repent for being a rebel. To repent for being a rebel. And for the very fact that you're grumbling is an accusation against God. And then listen, God is a good father. He is a good king. He is beautiful to us and generous and kind and noble and thoughtful. Let me pray for you, in fact. Father, we thank you for this service, but we thank you for being thoughtful. We thank you, Lord, that you showed us. You don't just tell us to be thankful in all things and just hand that down as some dictate or some rule, but you showed us because you broke bread knowing what was coming your way, knowing that that's not fair, and you didn't grumble. I would have grumbled. You didn't. You gave thanks. That was your thanksgiving. So, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us as your church see the grumbling in our hearts, whether we vocalize it or keep it inside. Ask ourselves the hard questions. What is it that we really, really have to have that the world's not giving us or that effectively you're not giving us? Why do we need that so bad? How is that completing us where you don't? Why do we want that more than we want you? Lord, we know that there is trouble in this world and it is just as sure as sparks flying up from a campfire. And Lord, we, we, can't, we can't always control how we behave in those moments and we can't always control how we feel in those moments. But Lord, we pray that we would be a church, that you would lead our hearts in such a place where we're thankful in all circumstances, even if we don't understand them. That we're thankful for what you've ultimately done for us and how you ultimately love us, and how you were ultimately good, even when we don't understand what's going on, and even when the hurt really hurts, that you are good, and you do good things, that you are kind, and you do kind things to us, that we are able to trust you, because if Christ trusts you with hell facing him, Lord, then we have the same Holy Spirit in us. So Lord, we love you. We pray for this Holy Spirit to be active in our lives. So as we pray, as we sing, as we give, as we take communion, Lord, we do so with thankful hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.